Hey everyone, it's Liz Kelly, and I want to tell you about the second annual Ringer NBA Palooza we have going on next week on Tuesday, October 16th. We'll be streaming a live marathon countdown to tip off with Bill Simmons and the Ringer NBA crew, featuring live podcasts, special guests, Ringer original shorts, and culminating in a Sixers Celtics watch party. You can check it out live on Tuesday across all of our social media platforms. And don't forget to check out our brand new NBA Palooza merch on theringer.com slash shop. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. Kevin, how you doing, buddy? Uh, very good. Alarmed at how human you sound when talking to your dog. I, I, that's probably fair. I wanted to have her in here because she's been so good today. I didn't want to put her in the crate because she would be confused. Mm-hmm. But then she was just gnawing on the bone. And I was like, yeah, that's probably not going to be good for podcast audio. So never know. Yeah, it's just one of those things. This is a uh, this is a gentle time. So, all right. We're going to do something. We This is a new kind of show format this year. So the first segment, we were going to do kind of highlights and everything else, or headlines, excuse me. And sometimes there just aren't, isn't that much news. You know, we've seen it over the la- course of the week. Or sometimes, with, sometimes just continuation of news that absolutely. we've talked about four times. So when we don't feel like there's something newsworthy to necessarily discuss in this segment, we're going to do something that's more of just a big picture look, kind of a you know, bird's eye view of the league and some stuff that we feel like is worth talking about on a broader level. So what we're going to do with this segment today is we're going to talk about the teams that no one's really talking about right now, but they will be in three weeks because they're kind of lurking. One of these teams shouldn't be lurking because their record is actually very good, but I feel like they've kind of gone undercovered and under chatted about maybe just on this show. So this was an excuse to talk about them. So let's start with that team. And that is the three and one Carolina Panthers. I feel like we kind of glossed over them after they beat the Giants last week to go three and one. And then they beat the, the only Bengals loss is to the Panthers. And we talked about the Bengals a bunch on Sunday's show. So let's get into Carolina a little bit. And I guess I'll ask you first, Kevin, why don't you think we're as excited about them as we are about other teams, despite how well they're playing? Well, I saw Tate Frazier yesterday in the office and he's, he's all in. Uh, shocking. I, there's a couple things. Number one, I think that even though I, I try to treat all wins as wins in the NFL because I think there's obviously a standard of quality, I think needing a record-setting, record-tying miracle to beat the New York Giants, who I don't consider a football team at this point, um, I, I do think that that lost them a little bit of style points. But, you know, I remember... I, listen, a lot of people I've talked to were hugely impressed with what Norv Turner's done. I think that the Mike Shula offense got a little stale there. So... I kind of saw a little bit of a break breakout um, this year. I don't, you know, I don't put them in the top top tier or anything like that. But I, I, I would not have been surprised if they won the NFC South. And so I think, in a weird way, they're not exceeding my expectations because I had high expectations, and because of that, they don't get my buzz. Does that make sense? That makes total sense, and I, I agree with you in a certain way. But I also feel like they are exceeding my expectations. And that's because I just didn't have high hopes for what North Turner was going to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting there thinking about all the hires that were made and all these exciting offensive coaches. And it's like, God, really, North Turner? And then I went back and watched the Giants game again this morning. And I'm sitting there watching that offense. And I'm like, man, this is pretty cool. Like, there's a lot of stuff happening right now in this scheme that I'm getting excited about. Cam Newton, 136 passer rating off play action. That's going to fire you up. So I went to the play action numbers just because they, it seemed like they were using it so often. And I feel like I'd seen something about the difference between last year and this year. So 
Cam is using play action on 28.1% of his dropbacks, which is the fourth highest rate in the league. And you see that number and you think, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they've been such a run-heavy team. That would be the smart way to approach your offense if you had Cam Newton and you know, this collection of running backs that you were giving the ball to this often. And then I went back and looked at what they were doing last year. 17.6, which is 25th in the league. I think Mike Shula did some cool stuff there during his tenure. That alone is grounds to lose your job. I mean, that's just unacceptable. And they use play, they use under, they go shotgun so much. And the efficiency of play action is diminished in shotgun, but I still feel like 17.6 is not enough. So let's look at some of the numbers this year. They are using 28.1%. So the usage is up. Cam Newton's completion percentage with play action is 14.4% higher than it is without. That is number one in the league. He's completing 75.7% of his passes with play action. That is third in the league behind only Kirk Cousins, who we'll talk about, and Drew Brees. Good thing they're using it because it seems to be working. Yep. And outside of the play action stuff, there are a lot of elements of this scheme where I'm watching it. And I know this is going to sound, you know, a lot, but it reminds me of some of the stuff the Rams are doing. Like it really does. They're doing jet motion all the time and they're using it as a means of misdirection while also going and using play action off of it the same way the Rams are doing. They're doing some cool stuff with their wide receiver splits in the same way that the Rams do so they can get some extra blockers in the box when they try to run the ball. I mean, there are a lot of elements there where I'm just like, okay, I can get into this. And obviously, when I'm watching it, it's a reminder that you can run the same stuff, but it doesn't look the exact same. And it's just kind of a window into the why the Rams are so good isn't because they run the coolest stuff. It's because they run it extremely well and they've fine-tuned it. Like the timing on a lot of these Panthers screens is like, yep, that looks different. So it's a diet version, but it still is something I like to see schematically. And I think that it's given them a huge boost. I say this with all due respect because they're playing so well, but the Carolina Panthers offense should not be this good. They have a back, they have a couple back, they have backup running or linemen in there, a couple of them. Their best and most dynamic receiver is a rookie. I just feel like they should not have one of the five or six most efficient offenses in the league right now, and they do. Yeah, okay, so uh, let's let's unpack that for a second. So I'm of the theory that if you have a really good quarterback... Oh, they're down to 12th this week, so I, I'm sorry about that. They were sixth in DVOA last week. I'm of the theory that if you have a really good quarterback, anything is on the table. That was our debate last year with the, the Saints, whether or not they could win the Super Bowl last summer. I said they could because if you have Drew Brees, basically anything is possible. I feel like that with... The Panthers. They have Cam Newton, who is, as we've seen, as dynamic a playmaker uh, on his best day as anybody in the NFL. And so I, I, I kind of think anything was possible from that team this year. I think Christian McCaffrey is really good. He's leading the NFL in yards and scrimmage per game this year. Um, I think that Norv Turner, I understand that Norv has gotten stale in some spots, but, you know, first of all, Norv Turner is you know, 25 years ago was Sean McVay as far as just the innovative, innovative um, maestro of a dominant team. And I, there were a couple of people in this, actually the spread offense community who were talking about a couple of weeks ago and talked to him for a story about how impressed they were with Norv and his ability to build an offense around Cam Newton. Cause only one guy has done it. And that was Mike Shula. The way Mike Shula built that offense was around Cam Newton. And there were a lot of Auburn concepts. And what I'm interested in now is to see 
Norv Turner come in with fresh eyes and just build a new offense around him. And so far, it's been a pretty good situation. I, I think that Cam Newton, at his best, I mean, he won the MVP, for God's sakes. They, almost, they, they, they came within a couple of bad quarters from winning the Super Bowl. And so I understand that team was stacked, and this team is not. But I just feel like there's only a couple of things you need to do to get back to that spot. I, I guess I agree with you in that way, but I still just feel like there are so many missing pieces and what this offense could be. They are not loaded to any stretch of the imagination. And I, I'm impressed. That's all I'll say. I would love to know, and this is something we'll never truly understand without being there. What do you think the exchange of information was like for this offense to be created? Because when you're looking at Norv Turner's staff, yeah. it's not as if there's all these young guns on there. Like there well, are Turner's a lot of dudes. Son. That's really it. It's yeah. Scott, and then they have one quality control coach. That's all. And the quality control coach came from Michigan, who doesn't exactly run Ohio State's offense when it comes to college schemes and everything else. So I'm just fascinated how this came about because I'm impressed by it, and it, it's doing very well. Yeah, yeah. So the one thing I'll say is, you know, one of the things I've been sort of, sort of obsessed with is how teams use the middle of the field. And I, you know, Early in Cam Newton's career, one of the most dominant routes he had was just getting a guy deep in the middle of the field. They actually didn't use it enough. And I think that he, there was, was a, a Ted Ginn joint. I mean, when yeah, it was, was a Ted Ginn. I mean, well, Greg Olson. I mean, sure. I mean, he, he, he used That's it. That's another in a lot thing. Greg ways. Olson's not playing and they're doing this. No, well. I know. I know. But I, historically, I forgot about him. Historically, guys like Ginn and Olson, they, they were just those deep threats. Right now, he averages 9.3 yards per catch over the middle of the field. And that's the best, that's the best of any uh, spot on the field for him. And they've only done it 14 times. And, and I, I think that's a little bit of a disappointment on my end. They're throwing outside the numbers. And one of the th- big things about 2018 is, and 2017 and 2016, is that you don't need to throw outside the numbers anymore. And so if, if I, and I know Norv, that's a Norv thing, sort of the Air Coriel deep ball stuff. But I feel like you can take some more easy throws over the middle of the field, and that would improve the offense just a little bit. Here's a counterpoint. Uh, it's I, and I, going back and watching the, that game again today. I, the the plays end up there, but it's not as if they're vertical routes up the sure. sideline that are only using that area of the field. There was a particular play I'm thinking of that's absolutely brilliant, where he moves C.J. Anderson into the backfield, and they're in pistol where McCaffrey's behind Newton, and C.J. was on the right. And it's a play-action throw where McCaffrey leaks out to, I don't say, five yards to the, to the sideline, and CJ runs to the flat. So it's a little kind of a flood concept to the right side where CJ holds the cover two corner, and then they had DJ Moore coming back behind them. So Cam is putting that ball to the sideline because that's the open area of the field. But in reality, mm. that's somewhat a middle-of-the-field throw because you're manipulating linebackers into opening spaces. So even though it ends up near the sideline, you still have a ton of space to work with. So you're right. using the middle of the field. The ball's just not ending up there. Right. So if anyone doesn't know, Norv Turner's basically made his bones on a, on a route concept called the 989, which was famously run with the Dallas Cowboys for, for a number of years with guys like Michael Irvin and Alvin Harper. And it's essentially two go routes and then an eight route over over the middle of the field. Yeah, it's and go. So it's it's let's it's get go. Going. It's go yeah. and an eight. Yeah. And the eight wasn't thrown to a whole lot. It was basically Michael Irvin gets open. And what's interesting about this, what you say, is that you know so much of of what Norv has done is 
is based on having really good receivers to execute those sort of things. And obviously the quarterback to hit it. But when you don't have those skill guys, it's a really uh, interesting wrinkle. And that's what I think is interesting about what Cam Newton's been able to do the past couple weeks. I totally agree. All right, let's quickly go through these other two teams. So I wanted to talk about the Vikings as well because I feel like this season, there are two quarterbacks that I've been most impressed with compared to my previous notions of those quarterbacks. And one of them is Kirk Cousins. And I know the numbers might not be staggering right now. They might not be super impressive just based overall. But when you consider the infrastructure of that offense right now, they're dead last in the NFL in rushing DVOA, and it is not close. They cannot run the ball. They have zero offensive line. The guys that are playing are hurt, and not everyone is playing. Pat Elfline is coming back from an injury. Riley Reef is clearly banged up. Rashad Hill was overmatched as a right tackle, and, and their interior is a bunch of guys who just weren't around at the beginning of the season. It's going poorly, and they've still been able to sustain offense. I think they're 14th in offensive DVOA right now, and that includes having the worst running game in the NFL. And a huge part of that to me has been John DeFilippo and the plays that are being called and Kirk Cousins' ability to get stuff done even when he had no business doing it and having two receivers that can just make ridiculous plays with no business with having no business of those plays being made. I'm thinking of that play against the Eagles last week where it was play action. Cousins is literally backpedaling seven yards deep in the pocket, flips it 25 yards downfield to Thielen, who makes a diving catch on the sideline. Yep. And the reason I feel like the Vikings should be in this conversation is that even with how badly it's going on offense and even with how bad the offensive line is playing and how terrible the running game is, I have faith right now in that kind of three-pronged approach of the quarterback, the offensive coordinator, and the receivers to actually get some shit done. Yeah, so I don't know if you saw this stat, but it was an NFL next-gen stat floating out there that Kirk Cousins is uh, by far the most pressured quarterback in the league. 91 pressures. Time to throw. Do you know much? <laughs> do you know how much time Kirk Cousins has to throw on, on the average? Throw? I bet it's like 2.3 seconds. No, it's 2.6. No one has 2.3, only because of the just lack of... It, let me tell you something. If there were faster pass rushers, it would be 2.3. Yeah, it, it's pretty it's much just as, a, as it's a limitation. As the, <laughs> yeah, it's a limitation. Yes. Yeah, it's a limitation on the human body yes, that exactly. it's only 2.6 yeah. seconds. Uh, that is almost the worst. It's basically tied with Andrew Luck for the worst in the league, but Andrew Luck has been pressured significantly less than Kirk Cousins. Um, both of those quarterbacks, by the way, are on pace to break the record for completions in a season. I mean, they, they're, for Minnesota, they're just throwing every single time. I yeah, tweeted, it's great. I, I tweeted this today that uh, I, it's, weird, it's a weird answer, but I think it's true. And it's really over the last four seasons, so it's not just this year. Kirk Cousins, I think, is the best play-action passer in the NFL, like consistently. It's funny because as far as the difference between play-action and not play-action, I believe the biggest difference in the NFL is Case Keenum. Which is kind of funny. Maybe last year. Because they kicked him out. No, over. I mean, just over the last couple of years, including this year. Yeah, but Cousins consistently. 31-point difference. I'm not even talking about just just uh, passer rating. But so when you talk about a lot of different elements, so like completion percentage, he has the number fourth difference in completion percentage with and without play action, 9.7% higher with. His yards per attempt this year are 10.0, which is seventh in the league. And he has the fifth best play uh, passer rating with play action. Mm -hmm. Again, let's consider how bad their offensive line is and how terrible the infrastructure there is. And these numbers are consistent from year to year. 
He's in the top three, four, even in the top one or two, pretty much every single year over the last four seasons. Consistently, he's been the best one. And when I watch them do it, it just makes total sense that he's really good at it. And it's what their offense leans on. I will say though, what do you think? What do you think Jared Goff's yards per attempt is with play action this year? I, I uh, 12. It's 12.7. There we go. Yes. <laughs> it's absolutely absurd. Like, it's it's just, amazing. It's so, so fun. And guess who runs the most play action in the league by a ton? Is it the Los Angeles Rams? 39.2% of their, of their dropbacks. The Rams have figured this shit out, folks. They really have. All right. Very quickly, I also want to talk about the Texans because oh boy. it seemed like the Texans were dead in the water. It really did. Now, they're two and three now after that win. And all right now, remember the first game or two? We're like, oh man, Deshaun Watson looks hurt. And how's this going to go? Oh, he still looks hurt. That's fine. Over his last four games, 68.3% completions. 101.4 rating, 9.15 yards per attempt. He'll still throw them to you. He's got one pick in all those games, and that is something that is going to be hard to get rid of when it comes to his just core personality. But he's looked pretty darn good, man. And, and I still well, think that there are playoff spots there for the taking if he can I keep totally playing agree. this well. I also think the commonality between the, the two teams we just named, the Vikings and the Texans, is that they both have statistically the two best wide receivers in the NFL right now. Yep. Weapons, dynamic quarterback, and pieces on defense, even if they're not playing up to their potential. Yep. I think that is a really good formula. Think about the NFC playoff race right now, man. You have nothing in the wild card. I mean, the Vikings are 2-2-1. Two, two, and one. Who's going to scare you in that wild card race? Let's pencil in the Saints and the, and the Panthers. Let's just do it right now. One of them is going to win the division. One's going to get the first wild card. Who's going to get the second one? I don't have a lot of faith in the Packers right now. And let's say the Bears win the division or the Vikings win the division if they surpass the Bears. Maybe it's Chicago. But I think in this equation, the Vikings are in there somewhere. It's no one from the NFC West. And I don't think it's anyone from the AFC or NFC South, except sure. for the teams we just mentioned. Sure. I really okay. think they'll be around at the end. I, I tend to agree. So let me let me back up and make a general point on this of the season. We've talked a little bit about how September and October are mattering less and less every year. And what I did is a nice, nice little reminder, uh, aside from looking up the fact last Sunday that Ben McAdoo wasn't on the hot seat this time last year, I looked up the standings and the power rankings from October 10th last year. And it is very, very funny to see. It was the week that we started collectively to start believing in the Eagles. They went four and one. The Packers were up there for a lot of people. That a lot of that, you know, obviously was an injury thing. The the Falcons were still being talked about as an elite team. Nobody, nobody believed the Jacksonville Jaguars were for real. In fact, NFL.com had the Bills in front of the Jaguars at that point. That's great. And the Rams were we were still in wait and see mode to the point that essentially everybody thought the Seahawks were still the class of the division and that the Rams were were just kind of a, a couple week fluke. So I kind of feel like, and when we discuss these teams that are three and two or two and three or, or whatever, I kind of feel like more and more, we know so little this time of year. And, and trust me, look at, look at October power rankings from even the last four years. It doesn't make any sense. The Vikings made the NFC championship game last year. We're ranked 17th this time last year in an NFL.com power rankings. We just did not understand who was good and who was not. And I think what you have to look at, instead of individual results this time of year, 
instead of win-loss record, instead of big-picture stats. I just think you have to figure out who's playing well, who has a lot of talent on both sides of the ball, who has the fewest holes, and project from there. I totally and agree. so when I look at a Minnesota or even a Houston, and I, I, I'm slightly hesitant to buy go all in on Houston because of uh, you know Bill O'Brien. I don't think he's a very good coach, but they've got the best receiver statistically in football, DeAndre Hopkins. And Will Fuller is pretty have, damn good, man. And Kiki yeah, Kuti looks like he can play. They, they have individual talent on a lot of, uh, in a lot of places. And I would also put the Chargers in that category. Yeah. Chargers are three and two right now. The Chargers I, are lurking. I, when Bosa I'm gets hesi- back, everything I'm else, hesitant. they're lurking. I'm hesitant to throw the Chargers into the playoffs right now, but I feel like at three and two, this might be the kind of thing where a lot, next year at this time when we're doing this podcast and I'm looking at last year's power rankings, I can't believe we were underselling the Chargers at three and two. Because oh, I a absolutely lot of talent. think they're in the playoff hunt, like 100%. And at the same time, think about where the Chargers were after five games last year. They were one and four, and they almost yep. made the playoffs. We were talking about them as maybe the most talented team in the AFC by the end of last season. So I'm with you. We? I was. A lot of people yeah. were. Twitter. All right. Twitter. Well, Twitter's fine. I'm, they're I'm like a the, of You know Twitter. what they're like? They're like the damn Denver Nuggets of the NFL. <laughs> it's just the only people who think they're incredibly talented are all on Twitter. Our NFL Twitter. That's fair. All right. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. Today's show is brought to you by MyBookie. Guys, you've heard me talking about this for weeks, yet some of you are still watching football from the sideline. Whether you're an expert or rookie, you should be betting at MyBookie. If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, MyBookie gives you the chance to create a big parlay. Pick three teams to win, and if you hit all three, you'll turn $100 into $600. There's so much to bet on right now. Playoff baseball, hockey, primetime fights, and so much more. MyBookie is the one bet I know you'll be happy with all year. I recommend these guys because I trust them. MyBookie has been in business for years, and they've got great online reviews. Their mobile site is also so easy to use. If you're on the sideline, now is the time to get in the game. MyBookie will still match your first deposit dollar for dollar, but you've got to join now because they'll be pulling that offer soon. Log on to MyBookie right now and double your money. Use promo code RINGERNFL, and they'll match your first deposit 100%. That's promo code RINGERNFL, R-I-N-G-E-R-N-F-L. You play, you win, you get paid. Now, back to the show. All right, let's get to this week's Take Shop. Why don't you kick us off, buddy? Okay, so big game, Chiefs and Patriots this week. I'm excited to see a lot of different things. I'm excited to see Mahomes against Belichick. Excited to see those weapons. You know, Belichick's big thing is who do you take away? What does he sell out to take away? I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by a bunch of different wrinkles. I'm excited to see Tom Brady try to put up numbers against a, uh, a Kansas City defense that actually played pretty well last week. But I, I want to caution. Here's my take shop of the week. This game doesn't really matter at all. Now, there's a lot of instances of... Belichick losing a regular season game and coming out back and and winning the playoff game. And in fact, it not being real close. And, you know, one of the things I think about last year was the Chiefs and the Patriots played. The Chiefs absolutely pasted them. And Belichick, A, stole their plays, literally stole their spread schemes and got better because of it. The plays they ran against them and scored touchdowns with just stole them. But also, 
you know, Belichick, it gave Belichick an opportunity to figure some stuff out to basically workshop what his defense looked like because his whole thing, and we've the best coaches of this era, Pete Carroll is one of them, Bill Belichick is one of them. The best coaches of this era have figured out how to peak in December, January, and February, and they don't necessarily care about October. And the thing I think about all the time with this is I once watched film with Chris Collinsworth for a story I was doing. And we were looking at Gronk. It was before the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl. We were looking at Gronk, and he was talking about Gronk getting a matchup with a linebacker or a slow safety or just generally somebody who won't be able to cover him. And he said something about Belichick I'll never forget, which is sometimes Belichick and Brady will not take advantage of that stuff because they want to put stuff on tape to basically confuse opposing defenses and then cash in that matchup when they need to. So they're not just going to take it every time because that would be the obvious thing. They would win more. They would probably put up more yards. They might score a few more touchdowns, but they're going to, they'd rather in a September, October, early November game, they'd rather just confuse you on offense and put stuff on tape and still win the game than just put up 50 points. So I think there are mind games. I think Belichick it, when you face Belichick, it's psychological warfare as much as anything else. And I think that when he goes up against Mahomes, this is not the defense we're going to see in January against Mahomes. And it'll be experimentation. It might go really poorly for the Patriots. I don't know. But what I do know is this is, you know, I, I once saw Philip Seymour Hoffman on Broadway. Okay. And he was doing a lot of weird. It was a preview. He's doing a lot of weird voices. And it didn't really make sense. Like, I was like, what is he doing right now? Why, why, why is he doing this weird stuff? It was Death of a Salesman. And he was kind of like figuring it out, right? And I read a little bit after that because I was intrigued by kind of his bad acting that he does that stuff to see what you're not supposed to do. He does that stuff to feel like, is this okay? No, it's not okay. And then he goes back to what he's ever he's doing. So he's basically experimenting in real time because he knows it doesn't matter because it's the previews. And that is sort of how I view the Patriots, is they're just going to throw a bunch of different things at Patrick Mahomes. Some of it will work, some of it won't work, but my guess is it will be a lot more effective in January. That was the most Kevin Clark segment that has ever existed on a podcast. (laughs) PSH? (laughs) Just the fact that you told a story about watching film with Chris Collinsworth in order to to explain the Patriots, and then because you you didn't feel like you'd explain them enough, you compared them to seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman on Broadway. I agree with great. everything you said, but I didn't, you, that was a twofer, and I really appreciated it. I got free tickets. It was really good. I, I'm jealous. I wish I would have gotten to go. I'm a big, big fan of his. I think he's the best actor of his generation. It's a great comparison. I'm very I happy have, you made it. I have a friend who saw another Philip Seymour Hoffman play and actually met Philip Seymour Hoffman at the box office when he's picking up his ticket. And they had like a 20 minute incredible conversation about stagecraft. Yeah, that's pretty great. All right. My take shop is this. It's not nearly as involved, uh, but I feel like it's starting to become obvious to me. And I think that what the Bucks and the Broncos, individual decisions they both made this offseason are going to doom them for at least several years. And I'm not, this is not a knock on Case Keenum. It's really not. But I just feel like the choice to forego a quarterback in the top five, we've hammered the Giants for it over and over again. But with the fifth overall pick, Josh Rosen was still there. They still could have taken Josh Rosen. Look how well Josh Rosen has played over the first two weeks. 
Now we're going to get to the end of this season. Vance Joseph will likely get fired. They owe Case Keenum a decent amount of money next year. They're probably going to end up just like maybe with a 13th overall pick. Which oh, is- by the way, by the way, everybody la- this time last year in the power ranks loved the Broncos. Yep, they were the best team in the NFL through like five weeks. I remember yeah. I, I probably was one of the people who wrote it. Except the Alex Smith Chiefs. So we're going to, Vance Joseph is probably going to get fired. We're going to be sitting here with, I believe Case Keenum still having a huge chunk of guaranteed money on his contract. So he's probably going to be the quarterback there. It's going to be just a lame duck year in every single way. They're going to figure out, okay, you know, here's the new coach. He has 10 million in dead cap. They're probably not going to cut him. So yeah. he's going to be the quarterback. They're not going to be a position to draft one. Then Keenum's going to be gone after next year. They're going to be sitting here wondering, well, how, who, who's going to be our quarterback? They could have solved this. They could have solved this. You are not a contender. You are not a Bradley Chubb away from winning a Super Bowl. You need a quarterback of the future, even if Keenum plays this year. And they just didn't care about it. And now it's going to come back to crush them. And with the Bucks. I think that their decision was not firing Dirk Cutter and not moving on from that coaching staff. Because when I watch this team right now, I love what Todd Monken has done. They've they turned Ryan Fitzpatrick into a superstar for a quarter of the season. Now you have Jameis Winston coming back. I still feel like the offense is going to be so, like very good. It's solid at worst. The offensive personnel on that team is really good. I mean, their line has some spots that where, you know, there's something to be desired, but the receivers are excellent. They have a dynamic tight end duo. The running game is garbage, but I mean, what are you going to do? I just feel like the passing game personnel there is so, so good. And it's not going to matter. Cutter's going to get fired at the end of this year, most likely when they go five and 11. And they're going to be sitting there next year with the same guys. Jameis Winston's going to be in his lame duck year. He's going to play that out. Maybe you bring him back. Maybe you don't. But you're starting over with a new coach. And your defense is rotted from the foundation. And that is, maybe it's a Mike Smith problem. Maybe it's one of those things where when we saw Sean McVay come in or a guy like Matt Nagy even and fix a terrible, just as bad it can get, as bad as it can get situation, it can happen very quickly. But outside of the front four, and maybe the linebackers, the personnel they have there is terrible. If this team had moved on from Cutter, gotten a new coaching staff with some real coordinators, I mean, I love Mocking, but I mean on the defensive side of the ball, and then drafted Derwin James seventh overall, what could they be next season? I just think it could be something exciting, and it's not going to happen. It is no longer on the table, and I just feel like they're going to be in trouble for a long time because of the choices they made this offseason. Yeah, no, I I, I I agree with both of those things. I mean, I think with Denver, John Elway has shown himself to be kind of ultra competitor to the point of maybe harm. His own detriment. Yeah, and and that shows itself in, in contract negotiations or, or, you know, different stuff like that. Obviously, that's what helped him get Peyton Manning. That's what helped him win two Super Bowls as a player. That's what helped him in a couple of different things. But the quarterback problem for him is always going to be lingering because it doesn't seem like he can evaluate. I really like Case Keenum a lot. I think he's he in the right system and the right situation can I totally be a, agree a with good you. quarterback. Um, but I just one of the things I worry about is is John Elway going to be able to step back and say we need a full scale rebuild or are we going to keep retooling and and kind of having a ceiling on this team that's that's a little bit lower than it should be. I feel like they're in trouble because I feel like that's always where they're going to linger if they don't have elite defensive players. And they don't. This is not yeah. the same team. And they're going to toil in the middle as a result of it because he didn't choose a certain path when it came to not rebuilding, 
but restructuring your expectations for who you can be. And that's really important when a team is willing to do that. And the fact that they didn't, I feel like it's a real problem. Yeah, I no arguments here. All right, let's move on to our biggest three games of the week. We chatted about Chiefs-Patriots a little bit. And what I'll say about this game that I'd like to see is, I would really like, I know the Patriots are going to slow play it. And as a result, I want to see the Chiefs score 50 points. I want to see them just dominate this game and gain some sort of mental edge. Because when you watch the Patriots play against the Lions, in my opinion, when I watch that game, the difference in athleticism and explosiveness between the Patriots defensive players and the Lions offensive players was just so drastic and, and almost to the point where it might be just a terminal problem for New England in the season. Mm-hmm. And then consider what the Chiefs have in terms of offensive athleticism. It's the most explosive group of skill position players I've ever seen. They have an advantage athleticism-wise at every single spot against New England. And I just want to see them take advantage. I just want to see them say, they were going to come in and say, we are the best team in this conference and we are going to show you. That's what I'm excited about. So what do you think Belichick does? In in what sense? What do you think Belichick tries to take away? Tyreek Hill. I mean, it's hard to take away a tight end because how are you going to take him away? Can you, I mean, maybe you put a corner on him, but Kelsey, I just don't know if that's the right move against Kelsey. I I feel like they've seen other teams have done that so much against the Patriots. Maybe you just double Kelsey on every play, but if you're doing that, what are you going to do with Tyree kill? Because that's the thing with new England, right? If you put two guys on Gronk, if you have a guy over the top of him at every, at every play and you buzz all the time. There's no, there wasn't a vertical element without Josh Gordon. There are three, like three vertical elements on the Chiefs. There's just no way you can play that style of defense and survive. Yeah, no, I, yeah, it, it's it's going to be again the first step in this chess match is going to be fascinating to me. I think that you know there's probably a joke in here, and I, I get it all the time. Anytime, any first of all, I, I don't understand the negative perception here. Every time we mention Andy Reid on Twitter as a great coach. We get all these absolute morons who are like, oh, yeah, he's got so many rings. Shut up. Just I'm so done up. with it. I, just, I don't even pay attention to that shit anymore. Shut up. You're, it, Andy Reid is an amazing coach. And there's this whole narrative of, okay, you know, and Andy Reid's going to flail when it matters or, you know, he's not a January coach or whatever. This is the best shot Andy Reid's ever going to have at toppling a Brady Belichick team. I totally agree. And I think this is almost like a, it's, it's like a boxing match that you know is going to have a rematch like Canelo triple G one, like whatever happens, there's going to be a rematch. And that's sort of how I view this is that this is just the first step in a, in it. It's a shame they can't play in the Super Bowl. Yeah, well, I also would like to see the Rams play in the Super Bowl, so it's not that much now, of a shame to me. I'm o- I'm o- I'm o- I'm over it. I'm, You're I done just with want, the Rams. You're I out. just want Reed Belichick over and over again. You're gonna get to see it twice, probably. That's not enough for you. No, just run it back. They should play in the AFC Championship game and then run it back again. Uh, I would like to see as much Reed Belichick as possible, but I'm all set with McVay Reed if that's how the Super Bowl goes down. That works McVay, for me. McVay Belichick. I mean, that works too. I I still would like to see the Rams. I think they're the best team and I think they're the most interesting team. So I'm cool with them playing in the Super Bowl. Belichick versus McVay would be amazing. Yes, it would. So trust me, I, as much Chiefs as much as Chiefs Patriots is fun, I'm all I'm all set with the Rams being in these games. Right, we're, meanwhile, we're all excited about these potential coaching matches. We're gonna get Mike Tomlin versus Mike Zimmer. <laughs> 
All right, let's move on to game number two. Yeah. And when I mentioned the two quarterbacks that I've been most impressed with compared to my opinion of them coming into the year, and I said the first was Kirk Cousins, the second is Andy Dalton. Hell yeah. He's played extremely well. I mean, that offense has been so good, and this may shock you, but guess what happens if you go to the play action numbers and you look at the team using it the second most? He's very good. 29.2% of their dropbacks. Jimmy G is second, but he's, you know, Jimmy G's done. So it's really Andy Dalton is number two. Again, this stuff isn't rocket science, folks. It works really well when you use it, and they've used it extremely well. I was looking yeah. at an NFL matchup play that Matt Bowen was breaking down. It was about kind of a concept they used. It was a deep over concept to AJ Green for a touchdown. And the route was amazing, and the defense, the a technique that the defensive back was using was wrong, and that's kind of why Green was open. But it was a perfect throw just to the upfield shoulder away from the safety, and he just has been making so many of those. I mean, his deep ball and his ability to place these balls down the field right now is so impressive, and it's turned their offense into a different sort of animal. I mean, we've seen A.J. Green since 2011. Have you ever been more impressed with the A.J. Green-Andy Dalton connection? I have no. not, because no. even in 2015 when that offense was just rolling, he it was everybody. It, it, yeah. Tyler Eifert was amazing, and the backs were playing very well together, and that was when they had still had Marvin Jones, and it, that group was just so complete and dangerous. And now Tyler Boyd is playing extremely well, and I've been super impressed with his development. But I still just think that that connection to Green, it's like, all right, this is the A.J. Green we could have seen his entire career if his quarterback was playing at a higher level. Yeah. So first of all, did you see what Carlos Dunlap said? I did not see what Carlos Dunlap said, no. Carlos Dunlap's from Catherine Terrell. She does a great job. Uh, good friend of mine. Catherine Terrell on rule changes and trying to sack a quarterback like Roethlisberger. Anytime you try to tackle a 300-pound quarterback, it's going to be pretty difficult. Is he? <laughs> I love the veiled shot. I just I don't know how love- I don't know. I can't tell if it's a veiled shot or he just has tackled Ben Roethlisberger and it's just like this guy is 300 pounds. If we made it Ben if- Roethlisberger by the way his listed weight is, t- is 241 pounds. If I told you you had to bet one way or the other for your life and Ben Roethlisberger was about to get on the scale, are you going over under 285? Uh 285. Wow. Okay, so he's 6 foot 5. Yep. I'm going to say like 270. I'm going over 270. Going over two. Are you going over 285? I am somewhat. I think 285. I think he could be over 285. I, Do right. you think that like in, in May or April, he ever eclipses like 290? Easily. Yeah. I, it's like a boxer. I am yeah. five foot ten and a half. Okay. Okay. And I know what my body composition has looked like when I've weighed like 220. Okay. Sure. And I mean, it's not that long ago. So I'm looking at someone who's six foot five and then looking at Ben Roethlisberger's body composition, which I've noticed, it wouldn't surprise me at all if you weighed 285 pounds. So I just want to tell a quick Carlos Dunlap story because I never told this story before. I was in college and I was covering the national championship between Oklahoma and Florida. And the, the, the access at, at those games is incredible. The players just stand there and you can ask them whatever they want. And so Carlos Dunlap had hit Sam Bradford really hard. I don't remember if it was a sack or it was just an after-the-play hit or whatever. And he looked like he said something. And I went up to Carlos Dunlap and I was like, what did you say to Sam Bradford when you hit him? And he said, I said, my name is Carlos Dunlap and I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. 
And I was just, I, I've never forgotten that because it's such a specific thing that I'm just like, what, what was he trying to get across? With I, that? He just wanted to introduce himself. That's so weird. I don't know what's going on there. It was, I can't tell if it was genius or just incredibly puzzling. And I actually think that it might have helped because Bradford would just be like, what the hell is going on with that guy? Yeah, it's a weird thing to say. It's like when Andrew Luck compliments people when they hit him. You just don't know how to respond to it. So it becomes a problem. Yeah, no, I hear that. I, you know, I got that. The way I got that story was a total accident. The Andrew Luck thing. But that's, that's another, that's a story for a different day. So just about this game specifically, I think that one of the elements I'm really interested in is that the Cincinnati defense is not very good. I mean, they've been in a lot of these shootouts. The over-under for this game is 54 and a half. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think it's actually gone down to 52 and a half, but it opened at 54 and a half. And that should not surprise you because I feel like the Bengals defense really depends on their pass rush right now. They have a lot of guys that can play up there. You know, Geno is obviously Geno Atkins. Lawson is one of my favorite pass rushers in football to watch play. And Dunlap is very solid. The Steelers allow less pressure than just about any offensive line in football. They're such a good pass blocking group. So if you can take away that defensive line, then you're really able to pick apart that secondary that's a very uneven group of players. Bates, their first year uh, safety has played well, and that's kind of why they were allowed to trade a loca. But outside of that, their corners aren't that great. I mean, William Jackson's awesome. But the other guys are like, eh. I don't know. I, mean, I feel like this could be a game where Juju eats. So, yeah. and then on the other side, I still think that the Bengals, even though their their line is better this year in pass protection, it's not that great. And I saw what the Steelers did to Atlanta last week, and I just feel like they could dominate the game again. They really could. Bobby Hart is not a good right tackle. I mean, he's worse than Ryan Schrader by a long shot. And the right and the left side of that defensive line for the Steelers just dominated that game. So I feel like that those that tiny advantage compared to the other side of the ball is why the Steelers win this. But I'm still excited yeah. about the Bengals going forward. Okay, a couple things. Number one, William Jackson. I don't know what the matchups are going to be. You know, William Jackson shut out uh, Antonio Brown last year um, over at least one of the games. He did not do that well in the other game either. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I know for a fact that uh, he had a, more success against Antonio Brown than the vast, vast majority of, of cornerbacks. And I had a conversation about the art of defending Antonio Brown with William Jackson. And he actually had some very interesting, mildly controversial comments that will appear on our website on Friday. But I just feel like William Jackson is not being talked about enough. And I I, I know that, again, I think media members saying someone is not being talked about enough is kind of an empty gesture. Because if we really wanted to, we could just talk about William Jackson every single podcast. That's totally fair. But there's still a national conversation. I mean, I'm, yeah, I there's still, still there's but, yeah, there. but I'm not even, I've never, I've probably never even tweeted about William Jack. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think he's a criminally underrated player, but I'm, it's not like I'm outside, like protesting outside and, you know, NFL network in Culver city to, <laughs> to, to, to talk about William Jackson more. So I'm not going to say he's, he's not talked about enough, but I will say that he, he is criminally underrated when you think about the top cornerbacks in the game at this point. I agree. All right. Our third and final game of this weekend that we want to chat about is a, maybe a weird one, I, I guess, compared no, to some weird. of the other ones that might be on the schedule. That one of the games I am most interested to watch this weekend is Chargers-Browns. I just feel like it could be so fun. Yeah, I mean, and it's two of the most visually arresting quarterbacks we have in the NFL right now. Like, who? if you can turn away from a Phillip Rivers game or a Baker Mayfield game at this point, it's because you don't like football and they're playing each other. 
I totally agree. I think that that element of it is just inherently watchable. I also think that one of the coolest matchups in this game is maybe not one we would have anticipated coming into the season, but the Ram, or excuse me, the Chargers have the third best offense in football by DVOA behind the planet destroying Chiefs and Rams, which is not surprising when you consider how well Philip Rivers is playing. Let's let's just do this real quick. 70.1% completions, 1,495 yards, 13 touchdowns, two interceptions, 8.6 yards per attempt. Philip Rivers is 36 years old. <laughs> they have been incredible. And then you go to the other side of the ball that they'll be playing against. The Bears are number one in the league in defensive DVOA. Who do you think is number two? I'm sorry. I've lost my train of thought because I looked up the Cleveland Browns and I'm now inundated with news that Jim Brown is actively in the Oval Office right now. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't even want to think about that. I honestly don't. That, I, I don't either. But here right, we are. I'll give you, I'll give about you the it. answer then. The Cleveland Browns are number two in, in defensive DVOA. Okay. And last year, their run defense was very good. This year, they're number two in pass defense DVOA. And here's how that happens. You have Miles Garrett in his second full season really coming into his own. You have Larry Ogunjobi turning into an excellent pass rusher in the middle. And you have Denzel fucking Ward. <laughs> that dude is crazy. He is so, so good. He's an incredible athlete. I was so impressed with him. I rewatched that game against Pittsburgh last week before we, I did my Monday column, the second half of it. I just did the quick version. And I'm just like, God, he's everywhere. He, he missed a couple tackles, but I mean, just pass breakups left and right, picking off Joe Flacco near the goal line. Yeah. I mean, this dude is just must-see TV every single week. And I mean, even outside of the Rivers versus Baker Mayfield stuff, which is fun, you have a really good defense now playing against this group. And I, I'm, I'm pumped. I just think it's going to be one of the coolest games of the weekend. We were considering doing Ravens-Titans, but the Titans are on timeout. We're not, we cannot so, we're not talking about the Titans for a while. Just to let the listener in on this, I we've decided we're no longer talking about the Titans until they make the Super Bowl. It, I've been I've been burned for the last time. This is not happening again. I just every time we get excited about the Titans, they score six points. Yeah, it's, they they are on timeout on the Ringer NFL show for quite a while. All right, it's time for this week's edition of May's Geeks Out, and we're gonna do something a little bit different this week. I wanted to talk about David Bakhtiari because it just feels like he's the best bas- pass blocking offensive tackle in the league. He's reached an echelon that very few players get to. And because Kevin's eyes would glaze over, if I talk to him about that, I'm going to bring on Brandon Thorne of the Scouting Academy and USA Football to chat about this because Brandon is one of my favorite observers of offensive line play. He is an appreciator of David Bakhtiari's work. And I felt like he would be able to explain this and speak to this in a way that even I could not. So Brandon, just right off the bat, what in your mind makes David Bakhtiari such a special pass blocker? Yeah, so I think it's kind of important to just talk about, you know, a little bit who of who he is physically. You know, he's kind of an undersized guy, you know, totally. Six, four. Um, you know, he, he was a little bit under three hundred pounds with the combine, but he's listed at about three ten now. So definitely an undersized guy, but he has thirty four inch arms. So, you know, pretty good length for his size. Definitely a little normal there. And I think that that length just kind of it helps accentuate, you know, what he does so well with his hand usage. But um, just in terms of being a great pass protector, I think you've got to start with how he comes out of his stance. He's very, very explosive and quick, and that helps him get to his spot, um, which is basically in a position to play, to establish an inside-out relationship with the rusher. And I think, um, you know, really what that means is 
it's the half-man relationship, and that's talked about a lot in the offensive line world because it eliminates the two-way go for the rusher. So it limits mm-hmm. his options as to what you know where he can go, and it really just takes away that inside counter. So from there, the only two options that rushers have is to either go down the middle and bull rush him or to win the corner. And very few guys win the corner. So primarily, the only way to really beat him is to go down the middle and to be like a really great speed to power guy. So like guys like Everson Griffin, you know, that's always a great battle with him. But um, so he's so good at getting to that spot and really just taking away the options of the rusher. And then from there, I think really what makes him so special after that is his hand usage is just it's phenomenal. The timing and the placement, the accuracy of his hands, the different things that he could do with his hands are just incredible. A lot of the times he invites guys into his chest to let them kind of shoot their hands first. And he just comes underneath them and just gets a hold of their frame and it's over. Um, and then this year, something that I've noticed a lot is the way he changes up his set. So he yep. doesn't just come out, you know, at that 45 degree angle and get to that spot. But now he's actually, you know, pretending like he's going to jump set a guy and set aggressively towards them. And then before he makes contact, he immediately retreats. And it kind of just throws off, throws off the timing of the rusher and their footwork, which, you know, any great pass rusher, I think, will tell you their timing and their footwork is key, you know, so they can execute their, their moves. So it really throws them off. And he just keeps rushers guessing all game. And he's just he's brilliant with what, you know, he's doing with his sets this year, I think. So that he's even gone to another level, you know, as opposed to the last couple of years where he's very good as well. So I think what you just said is very interesting. He keeps rushers off balance and he keeps rushers just kind of unsettled. And the fact is he's never unsettled. He's so comfortable at all times because he knows he can get to that spot. His quickness is phenomenal. And when you watch him, that two-way go you mentioned is so important. And even though he cuts that off with his angles most of the time and with his just overall quickness, when he does have to come back inside, he's so good laterally that guys just can't beat him back there when they would with normal rushers. So their plans so often are just sabotaged instantly. And that's why, for the most part, they've had to go to those bull rushes. And early in his career, even when he wasn't this nuanced of a player, he still had weaknesses. That was still the number one weakness, even before he had all these other things in his toolbox because he was so undersized. And I wrote about them a couple of years ago, the whole line. And Bakhtiari, I was talking to Josh Sitton about Bakhtiari as a rookie. And he says, I I don't think he was ever 300 pounds last year. And Bakhtiari responded, I was flirting with it. Me and 300, we went on a couple dates, which I thought was a (laughs) hilarious line. But this, he's very much over 300 now. And he, you can't do that to him anymore. You just can't do it. And the other thing that you mentioned that I totally agree with, and it's fascinating to watch, the punch is not often timed correctly the way you would teach it because you would never teach someone to let a defensive lineman get his hands on you that quickly. But the reason that right. he's able to survive while doing that is because he never misses. He never misses with his hands. And that and it seems like such a strange thing to talk about, right? Like a, a punch accuracy is the, one of the biggest reasons this guy is the best left tackle in the league, but it really is because so many guys, as they shoot those hands, they miss. And even if it's an inch there, an inch there, getting off the side of his shoulder pad, that's how a long arm move can beat you. But he never misses. Every single time, it's that exact right spot. And that's why he's able to play these games and do things that aren't necessarily by the book. And that's why he's so damn good. Yeah, that's, 
that's well said. You know, the, the, the hand placement of his is, is really what's so special. And then the timing, like you said, it's not traditional. It's pretty unorthodox, you know, because he does let guys get into his chest. But I think that that just lets him get comfortable for that, that second. And he's so good about coming underneath those guys, you know, different rushers' arms and just grabbing those handlebars on the inside, which, you know, offensive linemen have told me that it's really that armpit area where the shoulder pad kind of ends right there. That's Those are handlebars for the offensive line. And you can really, <laughs> you can hold all day as long as you get there, you know, because it's inside the frame. And as long as your body is, you know, in front of the defender and your hands are inside the frame, you you know, you got him. And he's so good at getting that positioning. So, you know, I think that was well said how you explained that. Awesome. Brandon, that's all the time we got. I, I went any longer. I think that I'd be fired off this podcast. We'll, me and you will start an offensive line only podcast. So it'll just be me and you talking on Twitter. But if you like this conversation, if you like offensive line play at all, please go check out Brandon's Twitter account. It's one of my favorite places to read just great material about in-depth elements of offensive line and football play, period. He's at Veteran Scout on Twitter. I highly recommend you go check him out. Brandon, thank you so much for the time. You and I will continue this off air, I'm sure, for like an hour. All right. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, buddy. All right. My sneaky truth of the week. The Eagles are going to make the playoffs, and any consternation about their offense or defense, while valid, doesn't ultimately matter because, A, they're probably not going to win the Super Bowl just because of a number of different factors. Number one is that they still have a quarterback turning to health, but B, they're going to make the playoffs because the NFC East is a massive tire fire. When I was talking about the teams possibly winning the wild card earlier, you realize I didn't even bring up the Eagles, right? Yeah, because they're, they're locks to win the NFC East. I didn't even bring them up because they're I just only, feel like by the end of the year, they have the NFC East locked up. Look not, at what Washington was against the Saints on Monday night. Oh it's, not, it's not to say they're the only good team. They're the only not bad team. Yes, they're the only not actively bad team, in my opinion, or not actively average team like Washington. Yeah, is Washington average? I think they're actively average, yes. I kind of think it's funny that the basically the entire passing boom, passing boom's taken over the entire league, and if you aren't on pace to break some sort of record, that's on you. The passing boom has basically just completely been ignored by the NFC East. Yeah, they have no interest in it. The they're NFC good, East, good. the NFC East saw the passing boom and was like, "That's not just that's just not the way we want to do things here." And Alex Smith, <laughs> they're over yard, it already. Alex Smith's yards per catch has gone down <laughs> against the worst year. secondary in the league. Against, against the worst secondary in the league. Well, last against week. and against the worst secondaries in the history of football. That Marcus Lattimore or Marshawn Lattimore didn't play in that game. He was out like the first quarter. Yeah, dude. Oh, God. It's so frustrating. All right. Let's stick with the NFC East very briefly. Talk about Thursday Night Football for 30 seconds uh, yeah. here. Uh, I hope you're ready for the nadir of the Saquon Barkley experience. He did so much ridiculous shit last week. It was so fun to watch. But now we have the very not good New York Giants running game against the best rush defense in oh, football. Lord. It is going to be unwatchable. Unless Odell Beckham can absolutely shred Jalen Mills and Ronald Darby, which, by the way, that's on the table. I just don't know how this is going to be a fun game to watch. Do you remember, I don't know how big of a college football fan you are, but maybe 20 years ago, the NCAA stopped giving television bans as part of like scandals. Like it was a recruiting violation. Sometimes there's like, I was unaware of this. Okay, so that was literally like, 
a thing they did in the 80s and early 90s was you're going to get a television ban and you just can't appear on television for a couple of years. That was an NCAA discipline. I'm ready to... Ha- There's been no scandal here, but I'm ready to give the Giants a television ban. No, because I like watching Saquon and Beckham when they're right. I, I just It's not their fault that Eli Manning exists. They didn't do this. No, but it would put pressure on them to get rid of Eli. Well, I don't think they're going to need any pressure, my man. I think that's well, all, it's, that's all I said and done. Do it, do it now. I thought that that was the case last year. And here we are. They took a running back with the second overall pick. Yeah, that's fair. It seemed like a pretty obvious decision last year. And here we are. It seemed like it. But here we are again. Yes, here we are. All right, and buddy. now it seems like another obvious decision. I'm excited to only watch like a half hour of this game before I go see Brian Fallon tonight. And it's going to be great. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. He's playing lots of Gaslight songs. It's going to be great. Is that true? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. It's all acoustic. It's going to be very pleasant, and uh, it's going to be a fun night, and it's going to mean I don't have to watch Eagles-Giants until tomorrow. I'm probably going to watch it. Hey, you do you, buddy. I live your life. I'm proud of you. All right, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening to the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We'll be back on Sunday night.